This is the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guide. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burns Center at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. I've uh, been off for the past uh, about week and a half in, in regards to the podcast, so we're going to get back into it. Just want to make some reminders that we do have other uh, presence on the internet, particularly in the form of the web. You're listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds, and this can be found by searching IC Rounds on iTunes. We also have another podcast uh, called Pre-Hospital Pharmacology, and that can be found at the URL address of prehospitalpharmacology.com or by on iTunes by searching Pre-Hospital Pharmacology. Also, on that same topic, we uh, have a blog on Blogspot, and the um, uh, address for that is prehospitalpharmacology.blogspot.com. You can also visit my... Uh, um, webpage at www.burndoc.com. I ordinarily like to talk about topics which I think will have a broad appeal to our listeners, which include uh, uh, people who practice critical care medicine on the uh, attending level, residents and fellows, as well as nursing and uh, pre-hospital providers. And I get a lot of email from around the world, and I certainly thank you for that. I do appreciate the feedback. Uh, The topic that I'm going to talk about today I hope is a rare and unusual topic, and I hope it's a topic that none of us ever really have to deal with, and that is the issue of what to do uh, following um, a radiation exposure, particularly in regards to a nuclear attack. You may have been watching the news last week, and a um, uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction Commission um, um, from the U.S. government um, launched a rather sobering uh, report uh, commenting that they felt that the likelihood of a nuclear or biological terrorist attack within the United States was likely, uh, certainly in the next couple of years. Today, uh, the WMD Commission sounded alarm uh, about the possibility uh, to prevent such attack. I'm reading uh, here from the news report. It says, The leaders of a commission looking into the risk of a terrorist attack using weapons of mass destruction delivering a sobering appraisal to fellow lawmakers on Thursday, uh, this is today, 12-11 of 2008, reporting that the country's ability to prevent such an attack has been shrinking. The bottom line of the Commission's report is that despite our prevention efforts to date, our margin of safety against WMD terrorism is shrinking, not growing. Senators Bob Graham and Jim Talent told a Senate panel in a prepared testimony laying out the findings of the Commission on the Prevention of Weapons of Mass Destruction Proliferation Terrorism, also known as the WMD Commission. Now, I mentioned this not to to scare anyone, but it is important that I think that as providers, we are aware of what are some of the types of injuries that we may see following a bomb and blast injury. We have learned from other types of attacks uh, around um, the world that providers who um, aren't really in a military setting are going to be rather surprised by the nature of these types of injuries. We have never seen these in a civilian type setting in recent uh, um, memory, certainly within the United States, there's a very limited exposure. Other parts of the world have had, unfortunately, more experience. Um, and uh, it's something that in a, a WMD attack, all providers would be called upon to provide care. So no matter whatever your, whatever your level of training or your scope of practice, you need to have an understanding of what these types of injuries are and how to take care of them. 
I have previously presented bomb and blast injuries as a topic here in this podcast. And if you go back to our website, I presented that topic back in July of 2007 under topic of bomb and blast injuries. Now, in that particular podcast, I give um, some more details on some of the physics behind not only nuclear type of injuries, but also the kind of injuries that you would see with a, a, a uh, more of a conventional type of bomb, particularly in things regarding blast lung injuries and so forth. And we will we'll go over that slightly, but for more detail, I would refer you back to that particular podcast. I want to focus on radiation injuries, and it's important to keep in mind that radiation is a hazardous material. You want to remove the victim from the source of the contamination, and you want to keep in mind your ideas here of the hot zone, warm zone, and cold zone. Now, uh, not only can the patient be exposed to radioactive uh, material, but they can actually have radioactive debris on them. You certainly want to remove any of that contaminated clothing and irrigate the patient with water. Any removed clothing should be considered contaminated and should be handled with caution. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you know the patient is, um, has radioactive dust or radioactive material on them and on their clothes, you certainly don't want to transfer them from a hot zone through an ambulance uh, to a hospital carrying that radioactive debris with them, and in doing so, contaminating the ambulance and the hospital emergency room and the like. Irrigation is to remove any radioactive debris or particles from contaminated areas without spreading the injury to uncontaminated body surfaces. So, you know, you don't want to sit there and marinate the patient, as I would say, in radioactive debris. You want to make sure that you, as you irrigate the patient that you're, you're keeping the contaminated area isolated. Continue with the irrigation until all the contamination has been minimized to a steady state as determined by a Geiger counter. So what you're doing is you're sitting there with the Geiger counter and trying to get the patient down to a minimal count. Patients with burns should undergo fluid resuscitation in a, in a, a fashion that you would with any other burn patient. And if you don't know how to do this uh, and you're listening to this podcast, again, I would refer you back to the other podcasts that we have done and regarding the fluid uh, management of the burn victim. Now, irradiated patients may experience vomiting and diarrhea that will necessitate an increase in the resuscitation fluids because of the increase in vomiting and, and because of the increase in diarrhea associated with that particular radiation injury. Now, the severity of burns produced by various forms of radiation is a product of the amount of energy that is absorbed by the target tissue. So if you're dealing with uh, weak radioactive uh, exposure, you're not going to see um, the same um, magnitude uh, of injury. Now, there are various forms of uh, radiation, and perhaps that's beyond the scope of this particular talk, but there's electromagnetic radiation, there's x-rays, there's gamma rays, and there's particulate radiation. The different forms of radiation are able to transfer varying degrees of energy to a particular tissue. If the radiation, for instance, is a high-energy form of radiation and it just goes through the tissue, that is not really as damaging, ironically, as a low-level type of radiation that basically gets entrapped within the tissues and will cause additional tissue damage. It is the absorption of the radiation that results in damage to the absorbing tissues. Now, typical exposure radiation occurs in the setting of an industrial or occupational incident. And when you think of areas where you have a lot of uh, industries, where there's a lot of handling of radioactive materials, healthcare should be one of the first that come to mind. 
the you know, detonation of a small hybrid nuclear device, i.e. a dirty nuke, is certainly a realistic menace. And the report that we just mentioned certainly shows that the federal government would think that in terms of weapons of mass destruction, that it is a threat that is very real and probably likely to occur in the next couple of years. The detonation of a nuclear weapon in a metropolitan area will certainly result in injury and kill by three mechanisms. Thermal burns from the initial firestorm, a supersonic destructive blast, uh, and the production of radiation. Now, acute radiation syndrome is the consequence of whole body radiation. Now, acute radiation syndrome, and you may see referred to this as ARS, typically appear with hours of the radioactive exposure, the radiation exposure. It'll typically manifest as nausea, vomiting, and crampy abdominal pain. Patients will require aggressive fluid resuscitation to prevent the development of renal failure. Now, keep in mind, as we've already mentioned, these patients may also have uh, other types of injuries, particularly burns, that will require additional fluid management on top of that. Patients may develop bloody diarrhea. They may they develop uh, bowel ischemia, overwhelming infections, and certainly uh, perhaps even death. The bone marrow will stop production of white blood cells and platelets, and you can certainly imagine the uh, problems that that's going to create. Now, speaking of a nuclear uh, mass casualty incident, now following a nuclear event, IV supplies and fusion pumps, receiving medical facilities are going to be in short supply. Think of a um, hospital on a, a given Wednesday. My hospital is running at absolute maximal capacity. And then somebody would set off a, a nuclear mass casualty type scenario. You have hundreds or thousands of victims. You're not going to be able to provide care in the manner in which you are accustomed to. Now, one can resuscitate the patient with oral fluids. A cooperative patient should be encouraged to drink a balanced salt solution to the point of maintaining a large urine output. Now, fluids can be delivered by nasogastric tube. Uh, there's something called Moyer's solution. And again, you have to kind of go back. Those of us in the United States, in, in my opinion, were perhaps a little bit spoiled that we forget that one of the leading causes of death on the planet is uh, dehydration from something as simple as diarrhea. So Moyer's solution is a oral rehydration type solution which can be manufactured by taking 5 milliliters of salt and 1 teaspoon of sodium bicarbonate and a liter of uh, water and that will create basically a balanced salt solution that can help rehydrate the patient. The World Health Organization has a oral rehydration solution as well, also known as WHORS, and that can assist in the oral resuscitation of um, a victim who's been exposed with uh, acute radiation syndrome. Now, there are phases of uh, acute radiation uh, syndrome, and that is the acute radiation has the four phases. There's the prodromal phase, there's the latent phase, there's a manifestation phase, and there's a recovery phase. The prodromal phase is, we've already said, is kind of characterized by nausea, vomiting, and fever. Now, the time of symptoms is a sensitive predictor of, of the severity of exposure, meaning that from the a patient comes to you, uh, you think or they report that they've been exposed uh, to a radioactive source and you're worried about acute radiation syndrome. If they told you that happened at noon and they begin to develop symptoms within a couple of hours, they have certainly had a very severe exposure to radiation. The longer the prodromal phase, the less the exposure to the radiation. And that period from exposure um, where they are symptom-free... Um, 
um, there's a latent phase. So you have the prodrome phase with nausea, vomiting. You have a latent phase where it's a symptom-free inter- interval, and then you get into a manifestation phase, and that's clinical symptoms that are hematopoietic, gastrointestinal, and neurological injury. And we'll, we'll define those and, and go through those a little bit more. The recovery phase is highly variable and depends on the severity of the radioactive exposure. Now, the intermediate effect of radiation, uh, these can actually occur even a month after exposure to the event. The event. They generally refer to non-malignant consequences. They can be circulatory in nature, digestive, and even respiratory problems. They're related to endothelial injury and are the consequences of progressive fibrosis. Late mortality rates are related to non-malignant diseases and have been estimated to be about 10%. Long-term effects of radiation are generally from a malignancy. Uh, the latent period for cancers uh, appear to be quite lengthy. In adults, leukemia appear at an average of 7 to 10 years, and solid cancers at 20 to 30 years after radiation exposure. In infants and children, leukemia can occur as early as 3 years, and papillary thyroid cancer 5 years or sooner after exposure. The actual risk of long-term carcinogenesis in, expo- in exposed patients appears to be uh, small. The uh, odds of expected for leukemia is about 0.3% versus 02 And for solid cancers, the uh, 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 observed to expect it for, for the solid cancers is 9% versus 8.4%. Now, the physical injuries of a dirty nuke. Now, what is a dirty nuke? And, and the public doesn't really know what a dirty nuke is, and that's some of the glory of that if you're a terrorist. Um, a, a dirty nuke are, are just basically dirty bombs that have an added radioactive contaminant that will likely provide a relatively small amount of acute irradiation exposure. So a dirty nuke, the incendiary or explosive effect of a dirty uh, nuclear device or a dirty nuke is not from the nuclear material. It's not from fission. It's a typical, you know, the explosion may be related to a conventional incendiary type uh, device, but there is radioactive debris uh, with the bomb and that creates um, uh, radi- radioactive contamination. Now, non emergent injuries should be treated in a routine fashion after surface, surface contamination. Let me restate that because I think that's very important. Non emergent injuries should be treated in a routine fashion. You don't need to reinvent the wheel, you don't need to do a bunch of uh, fancy uh, types of uh, maneuvers. All you need to do is contaminate the patient and basically treat them as you ordinarily would. Now, the risk of serious radiation injury to the patient or the healthcare team after exposure to a dirty nuke is low. The idea behind a dirty nuke is the fact that you have a bomb and you have something nuclear associated with that. And therefore, that creates a hysteria and basically uh, creates uh, almost a... um, uh, uh, the terrorist effect that they want is by creating fear of those two things being associated together. Now, the physical injuries of a nuclear detonation, the magnitude of both mechanical and radiation injuries would be great. This is with a nuclear detonation versus the, uh, the dirty nuke. Shock waves will inflict a not large number of injuries. Uh, the estimated median lethal dose mortality radius, okay, so this is the, the radius of a, um, a lethal dose of a 1 kiloton nuclear explosion is 275 meters. Now that estimate only includes deaths resulting from mechanical injury caused by the blast effect 
flying glass and debris in an urban setting. Now, injuries will occur farther from a blast site. Uh, severe non-fatal injuries around the perimeter and farther away would be enormous. Uh, thermal injury will inflict large numbers of burns. Uh, secondary fires will likely cause additional cutaneous and inhalation injuries as well. Now, radioactive fallout. Um, radioactive fallout will explode, expose a large number of radioactive material depending on the size of the bomb and the actual weather conditions. So, so how big is the explosion? Is the wind blowing? Which direction is it blowing? What's the plume effect uh, from the uh, fallout? A one-hour estimate of the radius of a uh, four-grade medium lethal dose radiation exposure from fallout of a one-kiloton device is roughly 5.5 kilometers. A casualty from otherwise survivable injuries from trauma or more likely combined trauma and burns can easily receive lethal radiation from fallout while waiting for rescue. Now, restating that another way, you can have significant traumatic injuries that are survival. You can have significant combined uh, trauma and um, uh, burn injuries that are survivable. But what will kill you uh, in, uh, in, in some of these patients will be the actual exposure to the radioactive fallout. Now, the medical management of radiation casualties, you have to have realistic planning. And uh, we have another podcast here, and we talk about disaster management. And um, it's important you go through that. The, you are in a phase of disaster management right now, and that is a period where you should be planning these scenarios. The um, WMD Commission has, has stated that they feel it is very likely that we will have an attack, either biological or nuclear, uh, by the year 2013. So the planning starts now. The fact that you're listening to this podcast means that there's some planning. You need to have appropriate triage. Appropriate triage is different than what we typically do on a typical Saturday or Friday night where we identify who the sickest patients are and then we um, uh, marshal the appropriate um, uh, resources to that particular in individual. When faced with overwhelming casualties, whether... It's five victims in a small emergency department or 50 victims in a regional trauma center. Will come with that the recognition that there are patients who are expectant, meaning that they will not survive. And that is something that some people psychologically have a very difficult time. You have to marshal your resources to the individuals to provide the greatest amount of good. Now, the other thing that is going to be kind of odd is there's going to be no capacity for in-hospital transfer. Patient comes, if you are a, a, a level 2 hospital or a, a community hospital and there is a nuclear mass casualty, there will be no inter-hospital transfer. The, uh, all the hospitals will be overwhelmed. The communication system will be down. The highway system and the, tran and the uh, transportation system will be non-functional. The patients will need to be treated where they stand and you'll have to defend where you stand. Estimates of radiation exposure cannot be made uh, time uh, field evaluation. Okay, you can't determine how much radioactive material the patient's been exposed to, and uh, evacuation generally should not be used uh, in the triage uh, process. Meaning that you can't determine um, the exposure of radiation to a particular individual, and you cannot really use that in your calculus of how sick a patient may or may be may or may not be in determining uh, the uh, whether they how they should be triaged. Some of the physical injuries that are associated with the nuclear attack, the physical injuries and the burns. Dirty nukes will have an additive radioactive contamination that will have a small amount of radiation exposure. 
Non-emergent injuries should be treated in a routine fashion following surface decontamination. Okay. Basically, decontaminate the patient like you would with any other chemical incident and treat the patient like you ordinarily would. The risk of serious radiation injury to the patient or the provider is low in the case of a dirty nuke. Remember that in a dirty nuke, that is just radioactive contamination, but the actual detonation of the bomb is not related to um, the detonation of the nuclear material. Now, the next area that I want to talk about is some of the effects of blast injury. And I've mentioned that we did a podcast back in July of 2007, which is still on the Internet, and you can review all that. It's, it's particularly on bomb and blast injuries, but I think that we're talking about nuclear type of uh, uh, injuries, nuclear uh, radiation type burns and a nuclear incident. It's important to go back over some of the concepts we talked about a year and a half ago with blast injuries, and, and principally uh, of that is the primary blast lung injury, or is often known as uh, a, a BLI. Uh, the blast lung injury has the highest morbidity and mortality of uh, primary blast injuries. There's some very good data out of this um, uh, from Chess 1999. Uh, Pizoff and colleagues reported 828 victims of explosions, 17% of fatalities had blast lung injury as the sole finding. Uh, again, going Peleg and colleagues, American Journal of Emergency Medicine 2003, hospitalized terror victims from Israel in September of 2000 to December of 2001, chest trauma accounted for 31% of injuries and 9.4% of the deaths. Uh, Arnold and colleagues in Annals of Emergency Medicine 2004, blast lung injury occurred in 42% of the victims in confined space bombings versus 10% of those involved in structural collapse or 7% of open air bombings. Um, looking at Stein and colleagues in uh, surgical clinics of North America, 50% of the victims will suffer some pulmonary damage with overpressurizations of 50 to 100 pounds per square inch and overpressures uh, greater than 200 pounds per square inch were uh, fatal in that series. Um, uh, moving on, uh, some of the clinical manifestations of blast lung injury. Uh, the high pressure wave travels through the border between the air, alveoli, blood vessels, and that causes ruptured blood vessels and alveolar septi. That leads to blood in the septa and air in the blood vessels. Uh, now, all of this leads to alveolar hemorrhage, perivascular and uh, peribronchial disruptions, alveolar and pulmonary venous fistulas, which may cause systemic air emboli. Now, some lung injuries present a simple tension pneumothoraces, and an evidence for pneumothorax needs to be sought and treated aggressively in victims of blast, uh, blast injuries. The degree of hemorrhage determines the degree of respiratory insufficiency. Hemoptysis and barotrauma are common signs. Rib fractures, rib fractures and chest wall injuries may not be present. Now, symptoms can include cough, uh, shortness of breath, chest pain. Um, uh, signs can include uh, some hypopharyngeal uh, petechiae, uh, hypoxia, uh, cyanosis, um, uh, wheezing, decreased breath sounds, uh, and as well as uh, hemodynamic uh, insufficiency. A chest x-ray uh, may show what's known as a butterfly pattern, but again, if you're dealing with a mass, ca a mass casualty circumstance, how reasonable is it to get uh, chest x-rays? Lung damage can occur over time, so a patient may initially be asymptomatic, but over a period of hours, uh, or several hours, they begin uh, start developing respiratory insufficiency. 
Further deterioration will produce complete whitening, similar to that that one may see in ARDS. And additional uh, testing may include uh, CT scanning of the lungs. Now, treatment for blast lung injury, uh, the specific treatment includes supplemental high-flow oxygen, masks, and endotracheal intubation, and chest tubes should be inserted for pneumothoraces as required. Now, ARDS can develop over the ensuing 24 to 48 hours. And it's seen in those victims with combined injuries of blast exposure. They can also have inhalation injury, significant soft tissue injury, multiple long bone fractures, as well as those that require massive transfusions. Now, air emboli, we mentioned, uh, that can occur from a disruption of a small arterial and venous uh, passages in the lungs, and, a, and air emboli can develop and may be the cause of immediate death following blast lung injury. Now, symptoms of people who've suffered uh, air emboli include sudden blindness, vocal neurological deficit, chest pain, or sudden loss of consciousness. Physical findings uh, could be vocal neurological deficits on exam, mottled skin, cardiac arrhythmias, uh, uh, as evident on the EKG. Treatment uh, for uh, BLI and air emboli, supplemental oxygen, and positioning in the left uh, lateral decubitus position with the head down. You're basically trying to trap any air, uh, basically, uh, from going to the brain. Uh, you can also see uh, some significant GI injuries from blast injuries. And again, because you're having a holoviscous interface, and holoviscous injuries can include hemorrhage, petechiae, circumferential rings of hemorrhage uh, to the bowel. Transmural lesions to the bowel can lead to bowel perforation, hemoperitoneum, peritonitis, as well as obviously subsequent sepsis. Now, perforations are not common. They occur in about less than 1.2% of the patients, but may develop over 24 to 48 hours. You see this sometimes in patients who have been in a blunt uh, trauma and they've got a contused bowel, particularly if you, or a hematoma of the mesentery that goes immediately adjacent to the bowel wall, and as that organizes, that can cause actually some uh, necrosis and, and subsequent uh, perforation of the bowel. And so you can see delays up to 14 days have been reported uh, uh, for people who have been involved in a blast and have subsequent perforation. Again, out, uh, like I said, up to about two weeks. Some of the signs and symptoms would include abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, rectal or even testicular pain. And, and um, this all really goes from a, a basic understanding of the presentation of the acute abdomen. Uh, if that's something new to you, I'd refer you to Cope's diagnosis of the acute abdomen, or perhaps that's something we should talk about in a future podcast. Physical findings may be absent or diminished bowel sounds. Uh, people can have bright red uh, blood per rectum, guarding, rebound tenderness, and even unexplained hypotension. Any patient with abdominal findings should be evaluated by a surgeon. Now, associated injuries that we could also see from these uh, blasts include tympanic membranes may rupture. This is something that's very interesting because... If you're trying to marshal large groups of, say, walking wounded, and you're sitting there with a bullhorn, and you're telling people, you know, please move to your left, and they've had ruptured tympanic membranes, they're obviously not going to hear you. And so you have to recognize that this is an associated injury that you may have uh, with uh, a blast injury, and therefore signage is probably something, um, uh, an alternative, uh, as an alternative to... Uh, uh, verbal instruction for people who have ruptured their tympanic membranes. People can have an intense and sustained muscle contractions, tetany, and this can result in uh, fractures of multiple levels of the spine as well as long bones. Patients uh, should also be immobilized, and long bone fractures should be splinted when fractures are detected or suspected. Uh, intracranial bleeds and cardiac arrhythmias can also occur uh, following uh, 
blast injuries. So there we have is a very uh, introductory uh, presentation of some of the problems that we could potentially have uh, with um, a detonation of a potential nuclear device in a civilian area. I hope this is information um, contrary to usually what we present in this forum. I like people. I like to present topics that I think are practical and a large number of people can use and start assimilating daily in their practice. It is my hope that those of you who are listening to this podcast never have to use the information that's contained herein. Um, but it is important that no matter what kind of practice you're in, whether you're a nurse, physician, paramedic, student, or technician, that if there were an event that many people would have to practice outside of their scope of comfort and their scope of practice provide um, a care to uh, the number of injured that would occur with such a mass casualty event. You've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Uh, my website is www.burndoc.com. There are other web offerings that we have there. Uh, we do some uh, blogging on the topic of pre-hospital pharmacology. You can link to that from there. And we also have a podcast on pre-hospital pharmacology, which is a uh, supplement uh, to uh, our textbook of the same title. Uh, thank you for downloading. Have a great day.